Brought to you by Trinity School for Ministry, an evangelical seminary in the Anglican tradition. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Trinity School for Ministry podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Josh Sullivan, and today we have another lecture in uh, J.I. Packer's series on evangelistic theology for a pluralistic age, taken from his June term class from 1998. This lecture is mostly comprised of several questions that J.I. Packer titles as pastoral questions that the cross of Jesus Christ answers. In other words, he explains the answers for questions that people have for pastors that are all wrapped up in Jesus's sacrifice on the cross. So join me as we listen to this second lecture from Dr. J.I. Packer. The first thing that I want to say and say at some length about the work of Christ is that it truly is central in the New Testament when you view the New Testament not simply in charismatic terms as uh, news to tell to the nations. That perspective is wonderfully explored in John Stott's book, as I expect uh, John will be telling us very shortly. But also when you read the New Testament as what a lot of it explicitly is, and all of it, I think, implicitly is, namely, a collection of pastoral writings whose purpose is to solve pastoral problems for real, hurting, bewildered human beings. And when you look at the New Testament from that standpoint, just as you find that the cross is central in the Kerugma, so you find that the cross is central in the pastoral dealings. And that is something which I don't find the books bringing out, so let me spend a moment or two trying to show you how true that is. Um, the cross is the answer to at least seven recurring pastoral problems, which you and I have to deal with today, just as the apostles had to deal with them in New Testament times. Pastoral problem number one, guilt and fear of judgment, or simply guilt and fear of cosmic disaster. Uh, in the ancient world, fear of cosmic disaster that would involve you was widespread among pagans who had never yet heard from a Christian preacher the message of judgment to come. And it seems to me important that we should realize that when that, <coughs> when that problem came up, comes up in the thinking, it is to the cross that folk are taken for a resolution of the problem. That's what's going on explicitly in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and following, where you've had two and a half chapters, remember, underlining the reality of sin, guilt, liability to judgment, certainty of a day of judgment with disaster for those who've not, who don't stand the test that's uh, 
used as a standard of judgment. And then against the background of all of that, which is section one of the letter to the Romans, when I teach it, I always say, the need of justification is the heading that fits there. Then you get to Romans 3.21 and following. Paul has intended to, that everyone who gets to this point in the letter should realize that there's a problem about sin and guilt. And he's speaking to that problem when he says, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. The law and the prophets testified to it. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. All who believe, there's no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, whom God presented, set forth, I think really was the better translation, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Yes, the NIV says sacrifice of atonement in the text, which is disappointing. But then it does a paraphrase of propitiation in the margin, which is encouraging. And the paraphrase is this. The one who would turn aside God's wrath, taking away sin. That is a paraphrase of propitiation, and I'm very glad it's there. Let me now read the verse with the margin, um, with the marginal rendering. God set him forth as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away sin through faith in his blood. And he did this to demonstrate his justice, etc. Uh, what justice is that? Well, it's the justice of which, on which Paul has been dilating in chapter 2 when he talks about the judgment of God who will render to everyone according to his works. We are in a guilt and ret retributive judgment context, and the cross is presented as the way of relief, the way of escape, the way of hope, the way out in relation to that pastoral problem. Um, in pastoral dealings of a Protestant sort, right from the time of Luther to the present day, it has been standard practice and regarded as ideal practice to start proclaiming the good news by proclaiming the bad news, declaring guilt, sin, lostness, certainty of judgment, and within that frame to set forth the cross of Christ as God's answer. And that's New Testament. Here it is in Romans 1, 2, and 3. A second pastoral problem, which is very acute today in forms which I think were not known in the ancient world, at least not in detail, pastoral problem number two is the problem of hopelessness. Kant showed a real insight into human nature when he said that the third of the three inescapable problems of life is what can we hope for? Kant seems to have spotted what people like Moltmann have underlined in these days and what the Bible proclaims on just about every page and what we really ought never to have missed. Namely, human beings are so made that we live very much in our own future. Uh, while there's life, there's hope. That's a true, a truism. But while there's hope, there's life is a much deeper truth. 
People who've got nothing to hope for find that their so-called life degenerates into mere existence. It becomes weary, it becomes dreary, it becomes a matter of listlessness because it's so conscious an experience of lostness. I'm not going anywhere, I have nothing to hope for. Um, you meet it in an acute form, I expect, brothers, uh, as you visit elderly folk, and every now and then you run across some elderly person who has nothing to hope for, and oh, how miserable they are. Um, that's human nature. If there's nothing to hope for, the light goes out. Well, it seems to me that Paul, um, wrote, writing the first half of Romans 5, which you remember is um, an initial celebration of Christian assurance and the hope that's at the center of it. I say initial celebration of that uh, because he does it again, covering the same ground in much more detail in Romans chapter 8. Have you ever spotted that and worked it out? Romans 8 is an enormous elaboration of what's in, Ro in Romans 5, 1 through 11. I think Paul knew what he was doing pastorally in spending two um, major paragraphs, the second an enormous paragraph, on assurance and hope at the center of assurance. What was he doing? He was speaking to the state of mind for which hopelessness is the appropriate name. And this is the way pastorally to minister to hopelessness today. Those who are justified by faith and so have peace with God rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And he says in chapter 8, it's for this hope that we've been saved. It's this hope that gives meaning to life. Once we see that, well, straight away life makes sense, however tough it may be in the short term. And with patience we wait for the fulfilling of the promised hope which is guaranteed to us. How? By the fact that Christ has died and now we're justified by faith. Uh, one thing that we shall see shortly is that justification, that is, God's imparting to us of the status for which the Bible name is righteousness, and the cross of Christ, where Jesus, as Scripture says, bore our sins, those two notions are correlative, uh, put together, they warrant the phrase that Athanasius used and then Luther was to use. I think Luther didn't know that Athanasius had used it. I think Luther devised it for himself. But be that as it may, it's a wonderful phrase. The marvelous exchange is the phrase. Christ took on him what was ours, namely our guilt, guilt of our sin, and put it away. And Christ sets upon us what was his, that is, righteousness, acceptance with God. And, uh, well, that's the basis on which now you can say the hopeless have hope. And anyone for whom hopelessness is the burden may share that hope if they will acknowledge that uh, sin is their fundamental problem and at the cross sin is resolved. As I say, Romans 5, 1 through 11, which centers on the guaranteeing of our hope 
by the action of Christ on the cross um, is, I think, it's direct pastoral ministry. I said that. Let me read the verses that count. It's verses uh, 8, through 11, uh, 8 through 10. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? This is the wrath of future judgment. Nothing to fear now. If when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Um, this is Paul dilating on the confidence that we can have, the hope of God's glory that is ours, the certainty that we shan't come into condemnation. We are in the life. We shall always be in the life. And there's glory before us. This is Paul's pastoral ministry to the hopelessness of the human mind. Another pastoral problem, which we meet today, and it's a New Testament problem, think of Demas, it's the fear of loss here and now in God's service. The fear, that is, that if one, as we say, goes all the way with the Lord, uh, he will lead one along paths, which mean that one has to forfeit position, profit, privilege, all kinds of uh, things which the world values, indeed which the world teaches us to regard as life's supreme value. And you may have to embrace poverty, and you may have to accept rejection, and you may even find yourself living at the risk of your life in the way that Christians in the Sudan and in uh, Iran and Iraq and many other places are living, are living today. And Paul, I believe, is speaking explicitly to that pastoral problem, a paralysis induced by fear of loss, so that people shrink from uh, thoroughgoing commitment to Christ and his service and his call. Paul is speaking to that problem, I think, directly in Romans 8, verse 32, where having said, if God is for us, who can be against us? And thus um, dealt in general with the, problem, the pastoral problem of fear. Remember that uh, the Lord is on your side and one with God is a majority. He then becomes quite specific in verse 82 about this matter of loss and gain. He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And that surely doesn't just mean all the things, that is, the good things that we can think of. It has to be in all the good things that he can think of. Uh, not for nothing does Paul talk in Ephesians about the wealth, the riches of God's grace. Um, so this is pastoral dealing. Uh, think it out. Short-term, sh short temporary loss in God's service, even if it becomes loss of life, will be more than made up for by the all things that throughout all eternity God is resolved to give us. And the proof of that, back to the cross, you see, the proof of that is that already he didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, and he was given the greater gift, the greatest gift. Can you imagine anything greater than the Father's gift of the Son on the cross? 
the one who gave his son to die for us on the cross, will most certainly give us the lesser gifts according to his promise. And it will be less wonderful when he does so. Why? Well, because his gift of the, his own son to bear away our sin on the cross is the most wonderful gift that could ever be. Nothing's greater than that. It's an argument from the greater to the less. And his language, he did not spare his own son, is surely very weighty language at this point. What it's telling us is not simply, though I think it does tell us this, that if God, consistent with his own being, could have saved us at less cost to himself, he would have done. But the emphasis is on the fact that inasmuch as there was no way of saving us save through the gift of his son, uh, the surrender of his son to, to Calvary, um, he did that. His love went that far. He spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all. Well, says Paul, let that take on the cross, that understanding of its significance as the supreme demonstration and measure of the love of God, let that um, support you when uh, the fear of suffering short-term loss in God's service threatens to paralyze you. And like Demas, you want out and back to the world. You can't face the loss. Says Paul, if you understood the cross and all that's guaranteed through us through the cross, you take the loss in stride. That's pastoral dealing. That's where strength of commitment comes from, from appreciating what Paul is saying in Romans 8.32. And there's the, there's the moral problem in the New Testament. This is a pastoral problem also. It's the fourth of my series. Where is the motivation? for changing your way of living so that you're setting yourself to please God rather than to please yourself, setting yourself to go God's way rather than the way that uh, the world goes and that you were going before and find yourself tempted still to want to go. Well, it's to come, says Paul, from your understanding of the cross. It's to come from your understanding of the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.14. Um, this is our understanding, says Paul, thus we judge. It's judge in the sense of discern, discernment and understanding. Thus we judge Christ's, Christ, this is Christ's love he's talking about, Christ's love which drives us. We are convinced, we judge, we discern, we're sure that one died for all, Therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. See, says Paul, it's from the cross that the motivation to a godly life comes. It's a motivation of grateful response for a glorious salvation. A similar thought comes out in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. Verse 19, start in verse 19. You're not your own. Realize that. You were bought at a price. Understand Calvary in those terms. You were bought with a price. So honor God with your body. 
You're his twice over by right of creation and now by right of redemption. Let this be the source then of your resolute motivation, your um, thoroughgoing commitment to honor God in the life that you now live on earth. Show your gratitude according to um, Romans 12.1. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, etc. And connected with that, there's the matter of moral standards. That's a pastoral problem. People don't like the thought that they must learn love and humility. And so they evade it. And sometimes they say, oh, poof, that's got nothing to say to me. I'm anxious to learn theology, doctrine, or um, something which won't require of me a, cha a change in the way I live. But think of Philippians 2, where Paul cites the hymn, that's probably what he's doing, that celebrates the way in which the Lord, the Lord Jesus being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to hang on to. That, I think, is the proper translation. But made himself nothing, took on him the very nature of a servant, was made in human likeness, humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Um, all of that is said, elaborating the thought of Philippians 2, verse 5, where the old RSV got the translation right, as it seems to me, and all the other translations fudge it more or less. According to the rules of Greek grammar, if no verb is given, that means that you're to understand the appropriate form of the last verb used um, as providing the verbal sense for the sentence that is now verbless or the clause, which is now verbless. And what Paul writes in Philippians 2, verse 5, literally, is think in terms of um, determining your attitude and your outlook. Think in yourselves as, and then there's no verb, and then you have the words, in Christ Jesus. Um, and the old RSV, as I recall, translated it, have this mind in yourselves, this outlook, this uh, perspective on life, which you do have in Christ Jesus. That's the only proper way to translate the Greek. And it's a reference to the reality of the change which regeneration brings about. You have a new mind in Christ, express it. And then, in order that we shall understand what that means, um, Paul quotes the hymn about the Lord humbling himself down from heaven to earth and then uh, down further to death on the cross, the most uh, shameful and thus the lowest uh, state, of, state of being that one could imagine for him. And then, says, says Paul, remember, God then highly exalted him. And the implication is that uh, he will highly exalt you if at this present moment you make it your business to express the new mind, the new outlook, which is part of your new being in Christ. Well, again, it's pastoral dealing, you see. It's um, argument which is intended to change the patterns of pe pattern of people's lives. The particular pattern here that Paul is seeking to inculcate is a pattern of humble love. 
Uh, you have all that in the first uh, verses of Philippians 2, verse 4, for instance. Well, verses 3 and 4 sum it up. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Uh, that's expressing the cast of mind, the outlook, which is yours in Christ Jesus, as illustrated, etc., by the hymn. That's Paul teaching Christian standards of love and humility. It's imitation of Christ, uh, the mimetic significance of Christ, as Alistair McGrath calls it, and it's specifically inculcated by appeal to the cross. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, for us and for our salvation. So you learn love and humility by contemplating the cross. Paul says it again in Ephesians 5 at the, uh, in the opening words. Um, having said that you must be forbearing to one another, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you, uh, he goes on to say, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, walk in love is the Greek, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Appeals to the cross, you see, for the paradigm case of the life of love. Thus he teaches Christian behavior. Um, sixth pastoral problem accepting human hostility and the rough side of life. Well, there's a good deal about that in the New Testament, and Peter is very explicit in chapter 2 of his first letter. He's writing, remember, to a church which is poised on the brink of persecution. It's clear that persecution is going to get worse and more widespread before it gets better, and Paul is writing to fortify the saints to handle that situation. Uh, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He says, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's how you must do also. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And living for righteousness includes coping with the uh, slings and arrows of outrageous human beings, uh, just as the Lord Jesus had done, has done before you. He goes to the cross, you see, to fortify them uh, against being discouraged and crumpling and giving up in face of human ill-treatment. And that's a pastoral problem. Um, we sometimes have to minister in that way, do we not, to people who are the only Christian in the family, and they're often young, and the older members of the family are coming down on them very heavy because of their Christian commitment. And there are other similar situations. This is pastoral dealing, I say it again, and the cross is the point of appeal from which the answer to the pastoral problem is given. And there's a modern one which I think Scripture deals with by anticipation, never deals with it explicitly that I can discover, but I think that uh, as a good pastor, 
Paul knew that the way you see yourself is decisive of the way you behave. Um, sports coaches know this, of course. If you see yourself as a loser, if you cast yourself as a loser, if you expect not to win, you won't. Conversely, if you see yourself as a winner and you do expect to win, you probably will. I think that uh, that understanding that the way you see yourself makes an enormous difference to the way you behave <laughs> explains why Paul is fairly elaborate in saying, as he does say in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7, uh, when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman born under law to redeem those under law so that we might receive the adoption of sons the full rights of sons, says uh, the NIV. I can see why they say it. I'm not sure it's very clear. That we might receive the full rights of sons, that we might be adopted into God's family. Now, says Paul, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also his heir. Uh, I am not saying that it's always um, good communication to tell people who are not living out their Christian identity that uh, they are king's kids and should therefore walk tall. But somehow the idea has got to be communicated. Uh, we are children in the royal family. You can, of course, um, elaborate this from the modern world. People's eyes are always on the behavior of members of the royal family, any royal family. And if members of the royal family let the family down, well, it's noticed. Remember, Paul is implying, you're sons of God, children of God, heirs of God, and at present your status is that of sons as uh, members of the royal family. You have the honor of the family, the honor of your heavenly father to maintain in your life live as a member of God's royal family and see that your father is honored by the way you behave. This is uh, what nowadays we call the significance of self-image. And um, self-image, as again we know um, from the world of modern counseling, self-image really is integral to your identity. That is, to the identity that you see yourself as, as having and the identity that you live out, and the identity that becomes yours by virtue of the fact that you're living it out. Well, it's important then that the self-image be right. And that, in this instance, you see yourself as a child and heir of God. And how could that be? Well, it's because Jesus died on the cross to redeem you for that very status and privilege. So once again, here is pastoral instruction for the edifying of the saints that stems directly from the fact of the cross. Well, that's the long statement I wanted to make, uh, which isn't actually exhaustive, but at least it's a beginning, it seems to me, of some rather important uh, thinking to which the Bible leads us. I, I remember that... Um, Oh dear, it was more than well over 40 years ago. 
But an elderly clergyman said something to me, which um, has always, from that time onwards, seemed to me to be the wisest single word I ever heard from anybody. Remember, he said, this came right out of the blue, as a matter of fact, um, God is sovereign in all things, and all problems find their solution at Calvary. For the last 40 years, I've been thinking out the second part of that dictum, all problems find their solution at Calvary, all problems, that is, about our relationship with God and everything that's bound up with that, and have been marveling again and again to find how true it is and how wide its implications are. So I share it with you, friends. All problems find their solution at Calvary. I think in your pastoral dealings, you will find, as I have found, that that is... Uh, constantly coming to you as a truth truer than ever you realized. So, I leave you with it. So, that's the centrality of the cross as a resource for pastoral dealing, parallel to the centrality of the cross as a focal, the focal point in the kerogma. And now from that, I want to jump straight on and exegete with you a few of the key passages in which the cross is presented to us by the New Testament writers. Just a few, not all, but here are some of the main ones. Uh, let me introduce what I'm going to say by observing that the sources of categories used in the New Testament to express the significance of the cross are three. There is first, the category of worship, from which comes the thought of sacrifice and fellowship with God resulting from sacrifice. There is second, the category of the law court, uh, from which comes the further categories of penalty to be paid, guilt to be acknowledged, and justification divinely pronounced. That's law court stuff. And then thirdly, there's the world of the battlefield on which the New Testament writers sometimes draw. Here, the key thought is of victory in conflict, resulting in the liberation and deliverance of captives from hostile spiritual powers who have now been defeated. Now we run to my seven uh, passages for exegesis. And I simply want to meditate my way through these passages with you so that you may see, or see again, because I'm sure that you have already known this in the past, just how rich is the New Testament and, and how specific is the New Testament way of articulating the achievement of Calvary. Key passages then, explaining the nature of Christ's atoning achievement. Number one, back to Romans. Romans 3.24 through 26. Uh, the exegetes have made something of a meal of this passage, but it only flows logically if you take it the way that I am going to exegete it now. Those who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, says Paul, are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 
whom God set forth as a propitiation. Uh, Margin says, as the one who turned away, turned aside his wrath, taking away sin. Pause there. Here we have a pointer to the hierarchy of concepts which Paul uses to express the significance of the cross. Hierarchy in the sense that the lower items in the list are explained by the higher items in the list. I'm going to divert for a moment and give you the whole list so that you'll see it. The lowest category of all is the general category of sacrifice. We ask, how does Christ's death save us as a sacrifice? The answer is, because it achieved redemption. The cross redeemed us, and you've got the word redemption in verse 24. And the background, the background of sacrifice, of course, is uh, Old Testament worship and the fact that only through the shedding of blood would there be remission of sins and access into, access into divine fellowship. Redemption now has as its background two other things. One is the biblical story of uh, the exodus from Egypt, uh, God redeeming his people from Egyptian captivity by a mighty hand. And the other is the way in which slaves bought their freedom and so, to use the language, redeemed themselves in the first century AD. The cross redeemed us, bought our freedom from captivity. And we ask, uh, how did the cross redeem us? How did the cross achieve redemption for us? Um, and Paul's answer to that is, well, it redeemed us because it reconciled us to God. The real problem was two-way hostility between God and ourselves, not just one way, but two-way. Um, God was hostile to us by reason of our sins and threatened us with the wrath, which means his judicial displeasure and rejection. But the cross reconciled us to God by removing the uh, obstacle to fellowship and so making friends of those who were previously at enemies, uh, previously enemies. And so the uh, next one asks, well, how did the cross reconcile us to God? How did the cross achieve reconciliation? And here Paul's answer, as it seems to me, is by being a propitiation, that which turns aside God's wrath through taking away sin from his sight. Propitiation is the category that explains reconciliation, just as reconciliation is the category that explains redemption, and redemption is the category that shows the significance of sacrifice and the shedding of blood, which is biblical shorthand for sacrifice, um, one of the questions that's been focused, remember, is how do we talk to people about blood? Well, the answer begins by saying blood is biblical shorthand for sacrifice. Now, let me talk to you about sacrifice. Sacrifice, the death of a victim, is a pattern, and the pattern is one which finds its fulfillment in the cross, and then you go up the series of categories until you come to the crucial, central significance of uh, the cross, namely um, propitiation, 
that which turns aside God's wrath by removing sin from his sight. And if one asks, uh, how was sin removed from his sight? Well, we, um, we're, as we're going to see, there's a great deal of exegetical matter um, explaining the thought of Christ in our place. Uh, the wrath of God, in other words, the judicial displeasure and rejection which our sin um, draws out of our holy creator being diverted onto the, onto the person of the incarnate son. It's so explicit that nobody ought ever to have doubted it. Liberals do doubt it because they don't like it. The reason they don't like it is because they don't like the thought that this sort of holiness which has retribution built into it as um, its necessary expression. This sort of holiness is part of the character of God. And that goes back, as you probably know, to um, Albrecht Ritchell, who insisted that all talk in the New Testament about the wrath of God and all uh, fears in the heart of God's 19th century people um, about uh, judgment to come and all preoccupations with guilt and so on and so forth. These are neurotic fancies. These are bad dreams. These are no part of the truth about God. Only human fancies and no more. Well, um, a lot of people have followed the false trail that ritual blazed. Um, so I trust do not we because the New Testament is on a very different wavelength. The New Testament writers acknowledge the reality of this divine holiness, of which retribution on sin is the necessary and just expression. In other words, the expression that is right, that's what the word just means there. For God to judge sin is right, that's the basic Bible view. And it's in those terms that the cross is explained God did judge sin. And so our justification is based on justice done. And it's just justification, existing from God turning a blind eye to our transgressions and saying, well, I won't raise the matter again if you'll live a new life. Sort of bargain. That's not the Bible doctrine. The Bible doctrine is that justice was done and that our salvation, our justification, our acceptance, our final glory rests on the fact that justice was done. And that's what Paul is saying in the next two verses, um, where, uh, as I say, the, the, exegetes have, um, uh, the exegetes have gone every which way, but there's only one way of getting a flow of thought out of it. And if you look at the text, you'll see what it is. God presented, God set forth his son as the one who would turn away wrath, his wrath by taking away sin, through faith in his blood, that phrase tells us how it actually happens that an individual's sin is taken away um, in that individual's life. But then he goes on to say, he, God, did this to demonstrate his justice. There was a great question mark hanging in the air, he says. In God's forbearance, he had left sins committed beforehand, that seems to mean all the sins committed in Old Testament times, unpunished. He did forgive them, 
Um, he did accept sacrifices and uh, continue in fellowship with his sinning people. But there was a question mark about that because the sacrifice of an animal doesn't really, doesn't really match, isn't really the equivalent of the sin of a man. So on what basis really was God uh, declining to punish people for their sins in Old Testament times? Well, verse 26 uh, tells us the answer to that question. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be both just, righteous, righteous in the Romans, two sense of judging sin as sin deserves, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. They're familiar words, but there's a tremendous weight of doctrine, as you can see, being taught by them. And this is, this is Paul saying explicitly, the basis of our justification is justice done, through the punishment of our sins in the person of the Lord. By becoming a propitiation for the display of God's justice in retribution, uh, the retribution that we deserved, uh, justification is secured for believing sinners. That's what's being said here. And 1 John 2 verse 2 and 4 verse 10 are both texts in which um, you've got Propitiation language, hilasmos is the word in uh, the Johannine texts, and the thought is exactly the same. Um, for the record, in verse 25, uh, hilasterion is the, 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 the neuter, sorry, the accusative of um, the adjective hilasterios, as most of us believe it to be, um, is the word that's used. You can see it's the same root. And there isn't much doubt about the meaning, although attempts have been made to get round it, as I said. So that's the first passage whose meaning I ask you to note. And now the second. Second is 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, where you have one of the greatest of Paul's great statements. Um, He's talking about his own privilege to be an ambassador of the as being to be an ambassador of the cross. Um, God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. As Christ's ambassadors, we implore you, we implore everyone on God's behalf to be reconciled to God. And then Paul, the great explainer, Paul. Uh, just can't say anything without the urge to explain it in a sentence which usually begins with the, with the conjunction for. Um, be reconciled to God for God made him who had no sin, who knew no sin is what the Greek says, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Um, as Richard Hooker in his learned sermon on justification declares, I think I can quote this exactly, we care for no knowledge, no wisdom in the world, but this, well, yes, wait a minute, it starts a bit further back, let men call it folly or frenzy or whatsoever, we care for no knowledge, no wisdom in the world, but this, that man has sinned and God has suffered, 
that God is made the sin of man and man is made the, right, the, the, the righteousness of God. It's a tremendous sentence. And that is Hooker, I believe. By the way, you, you know, don't you? Hooker was a top-class Reformation theologian. There was nothing remotely Anglo-Catholic about his theology, and for him to be claimed as a guy who was shifting Anglo Ang Anglican theology from its reformational base towards um, the Carolin type of uh, Catholic teaching, which blossomed in the 17th century with folk like Lord and uh, his followers, um, Jeremy Taylor, that's a complete mistake. That isn't the hooker of history. That is one of the fantasies which bedevils those who want to understand Anglicanism. Hooker was a Reformation divine, and never more so than when he spoke about justification based on the cross of Christ. You, you doubt it? The source of the oh. quote, could you give me that? Yes, Richard Hooker, a learned, a learned Sermon on Justification, that's its title. It was published... I think I'm right in saying, with the first five books of his ecclesiastical polity, about 1590. And his learned sermon is really a magnificent statement. As I said, he has understood what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 5.21. Let me now do the exegesis, and you will see it. God made him who knew no sin. That's one of the phrases in the New Testament that convinces me that the humanity that the Son of God took to himself in Mary's womb was unfallen humanity, whatever that is. He knew no sin. He, sin wasn't any part of his being. He didn't commit it, but the statement, I think, goes deeper. He didn't know it. It wasn't part of his life. God made him who had no sin. All right, I'll accept the RSV rendering there. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Not strictly, um, well, strictly is the wrong word, not to become a sinner by, commi by committing sin, but to be a representative sinner in the sense of representing those who had sinned and whom now he was in the world to save. In that sense, he was made sin for us. Um, I'm going to jump ahead to quote for you what Luther says in some classic sentences where he's exegeting Galatians 3.13, a text that I'm coming to next. Um, Galatians 3.13 in um, the NIV is, I think, translated better than almost anywhere else. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's an explanatory participle, and so should be rendered. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. NIV, correct. And Luther expresses the thought by some sentences, some Latin sentences, which in the English translation of Galatians are rendered something like this. Again, this is almost a verbal quote, if not quite. God sent his son into the world and said to him, you be Peter, that denier, you be Paul, that persecutor and cruel oppressor, you be David, that adulterer, 
you be the sinner who ate the apple in paradise. In short, you be the person who has committed all the sins of all people. See that you pay and satisfy for them. Now comes the law and says, I find him a sinner, one who has committed all the sins of all people. So it sets upon him and kills him. This is Luther being Lutherish. This is a, a sort of vividness which is characteristic of Luther and which you just have to uh, accept as part of Luther's way of communicating ideas. Uh, so it sets upon him and kills him. By this means, Luther continues, is the whole world purged of sin and all unrighteousness. Well, it's exuberant rhetorical stuff. But it seems to me that it verbalizes what we call substitution perfectly. You couldn't say it better. And you can add to the list, you see, with um, Peter and Paul and uh, David and Adam. You can uh, add your own name. Um, our sins were imputed to him in the sense that the penalty due to them was diverted from us onto his shoulders. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in that sense. And then the purpose of this is expressed in the last half of the verse, so that in him, uh, in union with Christ, by faith from the human side, by the Holy Spirit from the divine side, in him, through faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And that's not sanctification, that's justification. To become the righteousness of God is to have your sin forgiven and your person accepted and your status with God guaranteed for eternity. Um, this is the moment perhaps at which to say God's verdict in justification is the judgment of the last day, the final judgment, um, pronouncing the answer to the question, where will this person spend eternity? It's that final judgment being pronounced here and now in the present. When you did biblical theology, you learned, as everybody has learned, I suppose, since Kuhlmann, that um, though this order of things hasn't yet passed away, yet the New Testament gospel proclaims that the future order of things, the future life, the world to come has started. So the Christians live really in two worlds, this world and the future world. Well, it's the verdict of justification, the verdict, as I said, of the last judgment pronounced right now that ushers us into the acceptance and the joy of the life to come, which already we're experiencing, heaven on earth, heaven begun on earth. We have the first fruits only, there's a great deal more to come, but we do have the first fruits, it started. Well, that's where justification fits in, in Paul's, in Paul's theological thinking. And uh, that's what he's talking about when he speaks of our becoming, here and now, in him, in union with Christ, the righteousness of God. So that our status, our acceptance, our hope, our expectations, all these things are absolutely assured, fixed, established. This is how it is for us in time and in eternity. 
by being made sin for us, Christ has secured our justification, that is, our status of righteousness, and that's something that uh, eternity won't change. I've already said my piece, really, on Galatians 3.13, so I won't ask you to turn it up. Time is running by. Let's go on to quickly to another scripture, um, Colossians 2 and verse 14. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> Question, if I might. Um, yes, yes, of course. In reading your book, Scott's book, <clears throat> and as committed an evangelical as I am, I have never been fully satisfied with penal substitution. Is this the time to do that? Or? Well, penal substitution oh, is the picture of things that is building up from the exegesis yeah. of all these texts. Yes. The curse of the law is the law's declaration of the penalty of sin. So that sins it shall die. The piece that I'm missing mm -hmm. in all this is the high priestly work of Christ in presenting his life on our behalf in the emblem of the blood. In other words, the negative aspects of the cross are well established, I believe in them fully. I mean, the, the scapegoat, mm. uh, bearing our sins away from us, bearing estrangement, bearing the torment. Bear, I mean, I get that. Mm -hmm. What I do, see, all that does is get rid of the negative. But I hear the case being built, that does it all. And what I think is missing in that is, is the, uh, after he died, after he was buried, after he came back up, he went up to do what? To act as the high priest, to fulfill the, the offerings that were typified in the Old Testament. I just keep hearing dying, 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 mm -hmm. and not dying, then dying to do. I, I don't hear the priestly work of Christ. In other words, when I witness to somebody, it makes a whole lot more sense in my witnessing when I say to them, Christ took care of your, nailed your sins to the cross and dealt with them, and, what, and then applied his righteousness on your account, that, that, you're, that, that you're forgiven and, um, and, and Christ's life offered for you in heaven. The picture of the true tabernacle um, is what pleases God. God's pleased with you, not, not just... Mm -hmm. Sin was dealt with, but I guess I don't see the whole picture being presented in either of the books or in the discussion. I, I'm missing the, the high priestly aspect. Well, no, on your, John, I've talked enough. No, 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 sorry. Well, I know he offered himself as a priest, as the lamb, on the cross, but, but then what about the resurrection? Yeah. Yes, well. Um, when I finish talking about the cross, I see that I'm overrunning, so I may not have a chance to do much of this, but I was, I was going to say something about that, in fact. Can I just assure you of that and carry on? But no, wait a minute, there's a little more I want to say. You spoke, you spoke of the, um, the blood of Christ offered by the high priest in Hebrews as the emblem of his life. No, friend, it's the emblem of his death. Uh, there's an that's not what the scripture says, is it? The life is in the blood. Is, yes, is but it an emblem of death or an emblem of substitutionary? John, John I think, life. is going to suggest to us that it's an emblem of death rather than life. Look, there's a history here. Mm. Um, in the middle of the last century, um, some anthropologists and some exegetes urged that uh, the 
blood should be understood as an emblem of life vitalizing. Released. Yes, life released to impart energy elsewhere. Uh, and that was breaking with the historic Christian exegesis, which had seen the blood as an emblem of life laid down in death, uh, a death that is necessary in order for the continuance of the life of those on whose behalf the sacrifice is offered. And Westcott, who is a very fine man in many ways, and a top Bishop biblical Westcott. scholar, Bishop Westcott, he took up with this idea, and you got it in his commentaries on Hebrews and on 1 John, and through Westcott's influence and that of some other people, it was a very, it was very widely spread idea, and Anglo-Catholic exegetes took it up because it helped them, sp helped them say what they wanted to say about the Lord's Supper, which is that the essence of our action at the Lord's Supper is to join with Christ in heaven, offering himself to the Father. And that they, they developed this idea of the ongoing and unending offering in heaven. Now, <clears throat> I would say that that was a mistake and that the Lord's heavenly ministry ought to be theologized in the category of intercession uh, or intervention in our interest, which is what you've got in two places in the, in the New Testament. And we should understand the Lord's intervention, intercession on our behalf as based on sacrifice offered, sacrifice accepted, and a continuing ministry of mediating the fruits of the sacrifice, the benefits of the sacrifice, rather than a continued ministry of uh, self-offering to God for the ongoing putting away of ongoing yeah, sins. That's See? not what I was getting at. What I was getting at was no, the well, I'm, okay, okay. Uh, well, the animal mm -hmm. that didn't go into the yeah. holy holy earth to mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. on the day of atonement. Yeah. The blood. What is that? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yes. Okay. Well. Well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've said my I've said my bit. Apart from just one last thing, I agree with you that penal substitution is not the only category that's used to explain the cross. I insist, though, with John Stott, that in the New Testament it's the basic category that's used to explain the cross, and all the other categories ultimately are to be resolved resolved into, or at least uh, based on, the achievement of the cross in its category as penal substitution. That is, it wouldn't have all the other significances that it has if it wasn't a case of penal substitution. That's, that's really what we want to say, I think. Mm, that's right. Now, I illustri illustrate this um, from the next scripture I'm going to quote, if I may have a few more minutes. It's Colossians 2.14 where Paul expresses major theology so briefly that lots of, uh, lots of Christians never see it. But it's, it's, a, it's a passage with enormous preaching power in it, I think, and, well, I, I find it just terribly moving uh, just to think through. Um, pick up in verse, uh, end of verse 13. God, who made us alive with Christ, forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us. That, once again, is the curse of the law. The, 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 the fact that the written regulations were against us by pronouncing sentence of death on us for our transgressions. Um, he cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. 
Um, now, to spell that out, one has to say something like this. If you and I had been at the cross with the disciples and the women, what we would actually have seen with our physical eyes was the sort of poster, placard that they used to put up on the cross as a regular thing, declaring the crime for which this guy was being crucified. And, you know, Pilate wrote it. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Um, but what Paul is saying is that if, if you look at the cross with the eye of faith, what, 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 you, what you see on the poster is just the tally of your own sins. They call it penal substitution. That's what he means. He took the law, which was our death warrant, quite specifically, um, declaring the curse against us for our transgressions, and he nailed it to the cross. That's his picture. So I don't see how anyone who sees that can ever doubt that penal substitution is as fundamental as anything mm -hmm. regarding the cross in the New Testament. He goes straight on, of course, to bring in another picture um, of the significance of the cross, um, having disarmed or shut off the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's the further thought that the cross, which looked like a defeat and a disaster, was actually, to the eye of faith, um, an event corresponding to the triumphal procession which a successful general had when he came back to Rome after having carried, carried, th carried through a campaign and taken booty and taken prisoners and so on. They give him a procession, a sort of ticker tape procession in the ancient world. Paul's two, yes, but here Paul's, I see, he's using these two very vivid images to explain how it is that faith views the cross. Okay? Um, and then, well, because the, look, because the time is going and I'm cutting into discussion time, um, I'll end my series of exegetical explorations. There was going to be Romans 8.3, where it says that Christ became a sin offering and thereby condemned sin uh, in, the, uh, <coughs> in, in the flesh. It says that is, um, Paul is carrying through a personification of sin, which started at the end of chapter 6. The wages of sin is death. Sin's an employer which at the end of your time of serving it um, pays you its wages in the form of death. Well, this is, person this is carrying through the personification still. He condemned sin in the sense that sin was claiming the right to bestow the wages of death on us, and sin loses its case at that point. That seems the only, the only straightforward way of exegeting Paul's phrase. And by, it was by becoming a sin offering that Jesus brought about that state of affairs. And then I was going to do some exegesis from Hebrews 9 and 10, and I was going to exegete the words of institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, the blood of Christ is the new covenant. That is the emblem of the new covenant. But uh, let, me, let me finish what I had to say as rapidly as possible. Just one more point now that I want to cover and then we will finish. Um, it is true, as was pointed out before I started this presentation, that the church hasn't pitched on a single formula 
to express the truth of the atonement in the way that it's pitched on a single formula, which I try to avoid actually, to express the incarnation. One person in two natures, the Chalcedon formula, is what I'm referring to there. But there's never been any such formula um, agreed on with regard to the atonement. That is true. And <clears throat> uh, in the New Testament, you have a whole series of categories for expressing aspects of the significance of the cross. That is true, too. It's been said there's no argument about that. But in Christian history, there have been arguments of a different sort because, uh, well, really, this is, this is the fruit, this is the consequence of the cross never having been a matter of major challenge by heretics, not at least until modern times. You have in the history of the church um, a, a series of different ways of thinking of the cross, which stand side by side. Basically, there are three. There's the view of the cross, which was felt after, not, I think, perfectly expressed, but certainly felt after and correctly felt after by Aulain in his Christian Vic, Christus Victor. This was the staple of evangelism and pastoral preaching in the early Christian centuries. Um, Christianity came into a world that was demon-ridden um, in people's estimate and so fear-ridden. Everybody was scared of the demons. That was as true of the pagan world as of the Jewish world. And deliverance from the powers, uh, the power of the demons and from all hostile cosmic forces was a great central theme in the evangelistic and pastoral preaching of the early church, as I said. Um, Anselm, living in a different era when the fear of demons wasn't, so to speak, a selling line in evangelism anymore. Christendom had come in and displaced the demons at that level. Um, Anselm, as you know, in Cur Deus Homo, started a new line of thought saying, there's more to be said about the cross than was said by this um, deliverance from the demons line of thought. That can't be the whole truth of the matter. The basic truth of the matter is that the Son offered himself as a sacrifice to the Father. Now, you know in the Cur Deus Homo, um, Anselm, for reasons of his own, is trying to work out the doctrine of the atonement without any biblical exegesis. Um, he's saying, in the nature of the case... It had to be that where sin had entered into the world of a holy God, there were only two possibilities, either a champion who comes and saves or final judgment which um, eliminates from the scene those who've transgressed. But then that notion would involve that, the, uh, that, that God, God the creator, um, frustrates his own purpose in creation, which is to enlarge the, the circle of love and to bless human beings whom he made. So that can't be. And in fact, says uh, Anselm, we know a champion was forthcoming, son of God, who offered himself to the Father as a sacrifice for our sins to make satisfaction. Granted, these terms are not Bible terms, but they express Bible thoughts, at 
least so many of us believe. Um, Anselm spoke of satisfaction in a way which reflected how uh, the judicial system was in 11th century Christendom. Um, there was no such thing as <clears throat> there, there was no such thing as um, a public judicial system. Law was a matter of one person going to law with another, and satisfaction corresponded to damages in our present legal system. Um, compensation offered to the person uh, who has been one way or another um, impoverished, um, caused to suffer loss by what has been done. And Anselm settled for the category of satisfaction to express the significance of the cross. Luther refined that. Luther lived in a day when there was, through the local German, uh, um, German dukes, something like a public justice system. And um, Luther, in effect, said, uh, in Scripture, um, it's God's own law that's been offended, and the law is an expression of God's holiness, so it's God who's been, affected, who, who's been offended, and God's nature in Scripture is such that there has to be retribution. In all public justice systems, retribution is basic, and it was so in the German dukedoms of Luther's day. And that's what Scripture says, said Luther. And I, th I, th I think myself he was right, as you saw from the, way I, from the use I made of the Luther quotation, uh, taken from his exposition of Galatians 3.13. So, the question can be posed like this. To whom, in the first instance, was the death of Christ directed? And you can say it was directed to the demons to overthrow them. And that's as much as they said for the first thousand years. Or you can say... It was directed to God the Father, God the Creator, against whom um, we had sinned, and that's Anselm, and then Luther, and then Calvin, and then all evangelicals. Or else you can say, and this is the third option, um, you can say what Abelard said, allowed himself to say. Abelard was cussed, you know. He loved contradicting Anselm. He loved contradicting Bernard. He loved contradicting all the people regarded as authorities in his day. There are theologians like that still. And um, in, his, in his commentary on Romans, um, Abelard uh, rubbished both, um, uh, both, both the idea of the cross as the overthrowing of demons and Anselm's idea of the cross as satisfaction to the Father. And he said, the cross is a demonstration of love terminating directly on us who in our hard-heartedness have sinned, but who, when we see the love of God in the cross, are going to have our hard hearts softened and so be led to repentance. Um, I don't think that James Denny was unfair when he ridiculed that, that idea by saying, if I am sitting on the pier at the oceanside enjoying the sun and a man rushes up to me and taps me on the shoulder and says, look, I'll show you how much I love you, and he jumps off the pier into the sea and is drowned, um, that is not a demonstration of love, says Denny. That's a demonstration of sheer idiocy. Um, to be a demonstration of love, the cross has to 
do something for us which we needed done and which we couldn't do for ourselves. Well, that's what Abelard and his negativism missed out. Um, some liberals in the uh, ritual tradition, notably Hastings Rashdall, writing this all out, would you believe it, in the latter years of the in the latter years of the First World War, where millions of people were killing each other in the trenches, getting nowhere, um, but uh, others since Rashdall have taken the line that Abelard got it right, and they've tried to make sense out of the thought of the cross as a demonstration of love by saying Jesus was so anxious to teach the world that we're all children of God and must learn to love our neighbors, that he was prepared to go on teaching that even in face of the likelihood that the Jews would gang up to put him out of the way, which in due course they did. Uh, fidelity to his liberal mission made him willing to be crucified if that was how it had to be. Faithfulness, that is, to his liberal mission of teaching. It seems extraordinarily forlorn when you read these expositions, quite apart from failing to do justice to a great deal of New Testament witness. But that is the, uh, the moral, that's the, the, the state, as I say, of the moral influence, interest in uh, theology today. Um, and uh, these, are your, uh, these are historically your options. I would urge that in a, to give a full account of the cross, you must take account of all the different categories used in the New Testament to express it, though just because of the logic of the New Testament itself, you will have to put um, penal substitution at the foundation of your edifice, so to speak. It's the basic category. You will work into the picture all that Hebrews says about the heavenly ministry of our Lord on the basis, as I believe, of the sacrifice offered and accepted. Um, if you, if, by the way, if you want to see the central chapters of Hebrews exegeted in the way that I think is true, um, read the commentary of Philip Hughes, which is, uh, I'm glad to say, back in print. It's been out of print for some years. It's a, it's a top-class commentary. Mm -hmm. And once you've uh, followed him through those central chapters, I think you, you'll find yourself convinced there's really no other way, uh, no other way of understanding this. Hmm? Yes, he did. Oh, he did, he did. It's, it's, it's a grand piece of work. Um, as I say, for a full account of the atonement, you, you synthesize all this material, and you say, uh, certainly Luther and Calvin and the evangelical tradition stemming from them has been right to see the penal substitutionary category as central. But equally certainty, certainly, it's important to, uh, to, to, to do justice to the thought of the defeat of Satan and his powers, who are realities to be reckoned with. Um, Christians knew that until the days of the Enlightenment, when uh, demonology was rubbished, and I'm afraid evangelical Christians went along with it. Shouldn't, they shouldn't have, but they did. And equally, it's right to see that the achievement of the cross uh, saving us from divine judgment and from the power of Satan is an achievement which, by God's blessing, um, overwhelms the heart 
generates faith and love, and so has all the moral influence of which Abelard spoke and more beside. What we need when we talk about the cross, when we write books on the cross, is a synthesis of that sort. So I urge, and uh, with apologies for overrunning, that's what I offer you as a basis for your discussion now. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of TSMCast, recorded and produced by Trinity School for Ministry, an evangelical seminary in the Anglican tradition based in Ambridge, Pennsylvania since 1976. Trinity has produced more than 2,000 alumni to plant, grow, and renew churches around the world that make disciples for Jesus Christ. If this episode has helped to deepen your knowledge of the scriptures or strengthen your walk with the Lord, we hope that you'll spread the word and share this publication with others. Also, be sure to visit us online at tsm.edu, where you can explore admissions opportunities, sign up for our e-newsletter, read articles from our Seed and Harvest magazine, or make an online gift to our Trinity Fund in support of student and faculty excellence. Until our next episode, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ fill your hearts and lives with joy. Thanks again from all of us at Trinity School for Ministry, and God bless.